Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Food Insight podcast, where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist and food lover, take you through all things food and psychology, exploring all sides of the relationship between what we eat and how we feel. This episode is a research digest, and today I'm going to try to give you an overview of a common disorder that affects up to 15% of people in the West, and that sits right on the border between the body and the brain. In some senses, it's the perfect example of when the gut and the psychology get out of balance, creating uncomfortable, embarrassing and distressing symptoms for the person experiencing them. I'm talking about IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. Now, IBS is a complex disorder, so you might want to settle down with a cup of tea or maybe go for a walk because there's a fair bit for us to get through. But this is such a common disorder. I see a lot of it in clinic and GP friends of mine said it accounts for a lot of patient concerns. So I thought it'd be helpful to break it down. Let's start with what it is. IBS is what is known as a functional gut disorder. Functional, of course, doesn't mean that it's a good thing or that it's serving a purpose. In this context, functional means that the illness disturbs the normal function of the body, but where no obvious single cause can be identified. People with the symptoms of IBS will often have gone through a process of many months, sometimes years of tests, for all of the results to come back clear. Once they've exhausted all of the tests that are available, and if the symptoms persist, the doctor will settle on a diagnosis of IBS. In this way, IBS is also a diagnosis of exclusion, and that means that when all the other possible causes have been excluded, such as obstruction or cancer or anything like that, then a diagnosis that's left over will be IBS. Now, since no consistent cause has been found for it, there's also no known cure, and the treatments available are aimed at managing symptoms. So let's have a quick look at what the symptoms are. The main signs and symptoms of IBS are abdominal pain or discomfort that's associated with either diarrhea or constipation or a combination of both. Patients will often talk about having a flare-up or an attack, and this describes how the onset of the symptoms can be very sudden and seemingly unexplained. Depending on when these flare-ups occur and how long they last, these symptoms can be socially embarrassing and really affect the sufferer's quality of life. To receive a diagnosis, patients need to have experienced their symptoms for three months, and all other possible causes of the symptoms must have been excluded. 
Interestingly, women tend to be diagnosed with IBS more often than men. In fact, the biggest risk factors for developing IBS are being a young woman who's had a previous gut infection. It's not at all clear why this is. Perhaps there is a hormonal gut regulatory function. Maybe doctors respond to women's complaints of gut symptoms differently to men. That's a possibility, but I think there are also a few others. One is that women are much more likely to have had a history of experimenting with different diet plans, elimination diets and crash diets, including what's often referred to as detoxing, which of course has been completely debunked. But it's possible that all of this dietary instability creates imbalances in the gut microbiome or deprives them of the nutrients required for healthy gut function. Another idea is that in the West, we have a slightly pathological obsession with abdominal bloating. You'll see innumerable television ads and online articles predominantly targeted at women talking about how to avoid bloating and the value of completely flat abs. I think it's possible that for at least a small portion of people, there is a hypersensitivity to any gastrointestinal movement. And perhaps something that's completely normal, like having a full belly after a meal or the sensations associated with normal, healthy digestion are associated with illness. This isn't to minimise the concern that these people might have. You know, if you've been trained to think that a particular physical sign is a symptom of something that's going wrong, it would be normal to be worried. But perhaps for some, this worry is misplaced. And I'll talk more about this idea in future episodes. What we do know is that if you have an infection or a virus, experience high levels of stress or are very anxious, you have a higher risk of developing IBS. And this suggests that there is some role being played by the immune system or systemic inflammation, which anyone who's listened to one of my seminars will have heard me talk about in, in some detail. Other gut abnormalities are often seen with IBS, such as gut dysbiosis, which is an imbalance in gut bacteria, impaired function of the gut mucosa, and that's the gel layer that protects the inside of the gut wall and where all the bacteria live. There's also greater sensitivity of the nerves in the gut and increased immune activation. I'll go into detail of some of these changes in just a minute, but first we'll think about the potential causes of IBS. As I mentioned a few moments ago, there is no specific cause of IBS. However, there are several commonly occurring features. The first is infection. There's a well-established relationship between having a bout of GI illness, that's gastrointestinal illness, something like food poisoning or gastroenteritis, and then later developing IBS. In fact, the risk of developing IBS after gastroenteritis increases seven times. And this association implicates the involvement of the immune system. Potentially, the pathogens that created the original sickness triggered the immune system, and instead of turning off after the food poisoning cleared, the immune system remains activated and begins to turn against healthy tissues. Another common feature is gut dysbiosis. The gut microbiome is the community of microbial species that reside in the large intestine. They do a lot of very helpful things for us, helping us to extract energy from food, synthesize vitamins and anti-inflammatory fatty acids, and neurotransmitters. Though there is no perfect combination of bacteria that makes up a healthy gut microbiome, the general scientific consensus is that higher diversity and density is associated with better health. Gut dysbiosis is understood to play a critical role in the disease process of IBS. And recent research has demonstrated that there is a difference in the gut microbiomes between people with IBS and those without it. And further studies have shown there's a difference in the types of gut bacteria in the differing subgroups of IBS. In particular, a strain of bacteria called Firmicutes, which is a common gut resident, is particularly abundant in IBS, and another strain called Bacterioides is significantly lower. 
These changes were seen without there being any statistical difference in the diets between healthy participants and IBS patients. But it's not just the gut. A team of researchers at UCLA also showed that differences in the gut microbiome correlate with changes in areas of the brain related to processing sensory information. Which direction this information goes in, so whether it's a brain causing changes in the gut or the gut influencing brain structure, requires further experimental evidence. But it suggests that just treating one without looking at the other might be missing the mark. Gut dysbiosis can occur as a result of antibiotic use not just because they can kill a friendly gut bacteria, but also because after treatment, other harmful strains like C. diff, which is a bacterium that can cause diarrhea, can take root when the healthy balance of the gut is disturbed. Of course, many of us will need to take antibiotics at some point to treat other illnesses, and antibiotics are often used to treat IBS itself. But it may be important for any patients having to take a course of antibiotics to be mindful about taking a good quality probiotic during and after. Next up is diet. Diet is the quickest accessible way to make a change to the gut microbiota other than taking antibiotics. Now, whilst food allergy may be an issue for some IBS sufferers, it's not always the case. And often people who have IBS-type symptoms will believe that they have a food allergy or an intolerance when they actually don't. In this scenario, they'll often try their own form of elimination diet. For example, they may have read that gluten is a problem for IBS and then cut out whole grains from their diet. However, if no true allergy exists, they could very easily be further upsetting the balance of their gut microbiome. There may be some relief at first as the gut adjusts to this radical change in diet, but after a while, these improvements will not be sustained and the person will then try to eliminate something else, perhaps ending up on an incredibly restricted diet that at best is ineffective or at worst might be causing further harm because a diverse diet that incorporates a broad range of foods is the best way to cultivate a dense and diverse microbiome. There is also an important case to be made in favour of fibre. Fibre in its various forms, from whole grains, vegetables, beans, roots, fruits, nuts and seeds, is the primary food source for the gut microbiota. Without it, they will effectively begin to starve and turn to an alternative food source. Now, the most readily available food source comes in the form of a compound called mucin, which is a tasty mix of proteins and carbohydrates. Unfortunately, mucin forms a protective gel-like layer on the inside of the gut, and if this becomes depleted, then there's a risk of epithelial damage. Now, what's that? The epithelium is a tissue on the inside of the gut wall as well as all of our arteries and veins. The epithelium is tasked with being a barrier between what's on the inside and what's on the outside of that vessel. In the gut, then, it keeps any bacteria or particles of food from crossing over into the bloodstream and stops immune cells from the bloodstream from heading into the gut. And this is essential because if either of these things happen, the immune system, recognising that something is out of place, will launch an attack. This attack is great if there is an actual infection, but it's not so great if what's being attacked is the body's own tissue. In IBS, there can be an impairment in this function, and that means that the barrier is weakened and things that shouldn't be crossing over are. So those are the physical symptoms. But in IBS, in common with a lot of other functional disorders, the physical symptoms are accompanied by psychological ones such as depression, anxiety and fatigue. What is striking, though, is that for most people, these psychological symptoms can precede the physiological ones. So you might have a bout of depression or a panic attack that is then followed by a flare-up of IBS symptoms. 
And this is where we start to really appreciate the potential role of the nervous system in this disorder. But let's first have a look through the psychological symptoms and what they look like. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A common feature of IBS and other functional disorders such as fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome is that it has both a physiological and psychological component. Now, this doesn't at all mean that there is anything made up about it, but describes the way that psychological features such as stress negatively affect the immune system and can drive symptoms. For example, a fascinating paper published in 2016 asked groups of people with or without chronic fatigue syndrome to watch a distressing video. In this study, some participants were allowed to show their feelings, whereas others were asked to try to suppress their distress. The results showed that people with CFS were much more likely to suppress their emotions, even in the situation where they were allowed to show how they felt. Observers were also less able to tell whether someone with chronic fatigue syndrome was in distress, again, even when they were allowed to show their feelings. Another feature of this particular study was that as well as watching their faces, the participants were also being assessed for signs of physical distress. And this was measured by how much electricity was flowing across their skin and how worn out and fatigued they were after watching the video. The conclusion was that it was harder to tell that people with chronic fatigue syndrome were suffering even when they were showing higher physical signs of distress. And suppressing emotions was also associated with more severe physical symptoms. Similarly, a brand new randomised control trial has shown that a brief training in emotional awareness and emotional expression reduced the physical symptoms of IBS at 10-week follow-up. So there might be a very important role being played by the emotional world on the physical symptoms of IBS. And that brings us to a really important part of the puzzle, which is stress. Stress is a major comorbid psychological feature of IBS. Comorbid means that it shows up a lot in conjunction with the illness. And let's have a look why. Experiencing psychological stress creates an increase in circulating levels of stress hormones such as cortisol and epinephrine. And again, this stress response is fine if it's for short periods of time. 
However, the nature of modern life is such that our periods of stress tend to be prolonged for weeks, if not months, whether that's the stress of work, money worries, difficult personal relationships or caring for a loved one. This prolonged stress prevents the body from returning to a healthy homeostasis, a healthy, normal resting state. And this leads the immune system to constantly be a low level of activation. And this low level inflammation can damage the body's healthy tissues and systems. It can lead to damage in the areas of the brain associated with memory and emotion regulation, leading us to have poorer memory function and a tendency to focus on negative things in the world around us. And that in turn can predispose us to depression. Stress also creates changes in the brain that can make sweet, salty or fatty foods more palatable. That is, we find them more delicious and are more likely to crave them and eat them in larger quantities. This sort of eating can lead to changes and further inflammation in the gut that can trigger IBS symptoms. Stress can also have a direct and indirect effect on the composition of the gut microbiota and can induce dysbiosis. And on top of that, part of the acute stress response is for blood to be redirected out of the torso and into the limbs in order for us to be ready to fight or flee. And this redirection of blood flow impairs the process of digestion, meaning that we're more likely to get symptoms such as cramping and reflux. Now, it's easy to imagine a very modern scenario of a combination of all of the above. A person with a very stressful job, surviving on caffeinated energy drinks and snacks from the vending machine in the office, which leaves them physically run down. They catch a cold and they're feeling that they can't take time off. They go to the GP and request antibiotics, even though that's not going to be effective for a viral issue and instead may damage their gut. They recover anyway and return to their stressful environment. One of the main markers of stress on the body are levels in the blood of proteins called cytokines. Cytokines do a number of different things, but for the purpose of this discussion, they are signaling molecules released by the immune system in response to illness or injury. Cytokines promote inflammation and oxidative stress, both of which are linked to several chronic illnesses such as rheumatoid arthritis, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, depression and schizophrenia. And several studies have reported elevated levels of certain cytokines in IBS patients. Many other factors can lead to higher than usual levels of these cytokines, as well as stress. High levels are associated with anxiety, depression, poor diet and a sedentary lifestyle and obesity. One very important discovery was a relationship between early life adversity and inflammation, this altered immune response. In 2015, researchers from King's College London published a paper showing that adults who had experienced trauma in early life had higher circulating levels of stress hormones and these pro-inflammatory cytokines. In this way, the difficulty that these adults had gone through as children had left a biological scar and these immune changes may explain why people who have suffered childhood trauma are at greater risk of a number of physical and psychological health issues. Correspondingly, a history of childhood trauma is also one of the risk factors for developing IBS. Those are the risks and some of the possible causes, but what are the treatment options? In 2% of cases, people recover from IBS without any intervention. For everyone else, as I mentioned, treatments are aimed at managing symptoms. The broad range of associated factors in the development of IBS should suggest that a range of treatment options should be used. The first thing that I think someone with IBS needs is a full and thorough clinical assessment. After any other causes of the symptoms have been eliminated, it's important to find out what the likely candidates are. That is to say, what subgroup that person is likely to fall into. 
In a full assessment, you can find out about what the potential sources of stress are in that person's life. Do they feel they manage stress well? Are they often anxious? You can also find out about the quality of their diet or any significant history of antibiotic use that may have unbalanced the gut microbiome. Some labs also offer gut microbe testing, so that could soon be an additional feature of clinical assessment for IBS. Though the research on dietary changes in managing IBS is sparse, some patients suggest that eating small meals and maintaining a high fibre diet can be helpful. For a small number of patients, though, there may be some difficulty with the fermentation in the gut of some types of carbohydrates. These fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols, or FODMAPs for short, can be broken down quickly in the small intestine and may be responsible for some IBS symptoms in some people. A low FODMAPs diet then can be helpful in managing this. However, it is a complex approach and anyone wanting to try it is advised to seek the advice of a registered dietitian who is experienced in working with low FODMAPs diet before embarking on it. They will also be able to help you monitor symptoms and check whether this is the best dietary approach for you. It's also true that exercise has been shown to improve GI symptoms in IBS and is a recommended part of any overall treatment plan. There's also an incredibly important role of psychological therapy. A meta-analysis published last year has shown that psychotherapy is an effective long-term treatment for reducing symptom severity in IBS. The researchers included only really high-quality studies, so that's randomised control trials, and the final analysis included data from a pool of 2,290 individuals. The trials that they looked at included standard psychological therapy, as well as relaxation technique training, individual and group treatments, and therapy provided in person or by a therapist online. Psychological treatments were shown to be effective both at short-term, which is one to six months, or long-term follow-up, which is six months to a year. So the treatments worked and the effects lasted. This study follows an earlier meta-analysis that showed psychotherapy to be as effective as antidepressant medication at improving quality of life for IBS sufferers, but that psychotherapy was more effective than medication at reducing subsequent healthcare costs. Psychological therapy has been shown to improve overall psychological well-being and daily functioning in IBS patients and is cost-effective. One of the most interesting drug treatments for IBS, certainly from my perspective as a psychologist, is SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Serotonin is a well-researched neurotransmitter that is associated with feelings of happiness and well-being and SSRIs are one of the most common types of antidepressant medication prescribed. However, up to 90% of the serotonin produced naturally in the body is found in and around the gut where it regulates the movement of the bowel. So this is another interesting overlap between the function of the brain and the gut in IBS. Now, the serotonin secreted in the gut can't be used by the brain, but there may be communication in both directions via the vagus nerve that connects the two and also passes through many other organs in between. There's also some evidence that the gut microbiome can affect the production of serotonin in the gut, and this may be one of the reasons why probiotics have been found to be helpful at reducing pain and severity of symptoms for some patients. So what's the best approach? Looking at all of the evidence together and looking at the high correlation between physical and psychological symptoms, an optimal approach to treating IBS is, I think, one that addresses both. That is to say that a systemic issue should have a systemic treatment. Just treating the symptoms, for example, with antacids is like walking into a flooded room, mopping the floor, but not turning off the tap. I've attached a diagram that shows just a few of the related systems in either the etiology or the development of IBS. And you can see that stress plays a critical role in the disease process of it. Directly or indirectly, 
Stress affects the sensitivity of the nerves in the gut, the movement of food through the gut, epithelial function, immune function, the structure of the microbiome and the sensitivity to symptoms. Stress through the immune system is also linked to depression and anxiety, two illnesses that are really closely associated with IBS and show up in up to 80% of IBS cases. The impact and management of stress should therefore be a core feature of IBS treatment as it helps to address the broader systemic pathology and symptoms associated with the illness. Increasingly, GPs are making more psychological referrals for patients with IBS. And in my personal experience, I've seen some really good results when clients have been given the tools to help them recognise and manage the areas of pressure in their own lives. To round up, IBS is a complex but increasingly common disorder that involves nerve signalling to and from the brain and the gut, immune function and inflammation mediated by the stress signalling system. In IBS, there's a disturbance in the brain-gut microbiome axis in both directions. IBS is also a stress-sensitive disorder and treatments that involve addressing the psychological stresses as well as treating the gut directly are likely to have the best chance at improving quality of life and functioning in IBS patients. That's all I have for you today, a very brief overview of a very complex disorder. There's still a lot to say, so I might come back to that a little bit later in the year. However, I hope that it has been a helpful look at this interesting syndrome. In upcoming episodes of the podcast, I'll be talking to someone about the complexities of obesity and looking at what researchers mean when they refer to Alzheimer's disease as type 3 diabetes. I hope you'll join me for that. All that's left for me to say is to thank you very much for listening. And until next time, I wish you the very best of health. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.